want to ask you this morning if you'll turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 6. As you're turning there, I want to just welcome all of those who are joining us via our Facebook live stream. We want to welcome you to today's service. Thank you for taking the time out to join us. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts today and write its truths on our hearts and change us forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word to work in our hearts, to bring conviction, to bring encouragement. We pray that your spirit would work mightily in our midst today to come and be our teacher. We pray that we would see our Lord Jesus Christ glorified and exalted as we have never seen him before and that we would be forever changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we begin a new study through the book of Ruth, a much anticipated study much anticipated by me at least I hope it has been much anticipated by you uh, a, a little book just four chapters little insignificant book in the Old Testament or or at least some might say what with all the other books that are in the Old Testament that seem to be so much more important like Genesis very important book isn't it I mean, that's where we find out the beginnings of everything. Creation and marriage and the fall and, and the great people that we come into contact with there, Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We know uh, how important the, the Psalms are. That's a, a favorite book of many, the, the prayers of God's people most of whom are written by David the king. And then we have these other narrative sections of the Old Testament that tell us about the, the kings, and we love those stories, right? First and second Samuel and first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles and Isaiah that we read from and the other prophets that tell us of the coming Lord Jesus and the restoration of his people. All of this is important. Most of these books are quoted in the New Testament, but Ruth is not. Just a little insignificant book, isn't it? A little blip on the radar, we might say. There's about 3,500 years of Israel's history covered in the Old Testament. Ruth 
covers just a few. And so we might be wondering, well, why would we go through this book? What's the point? Well, a lot of people have missed the point of this book. Some people would say, well, if you want to know how to be a, a good daughter-in-law, this is the book for you. <laughs> or how to not be a mother-in-law, this is the book for you. I'm not going to say that there's not some truth to those things, but that's really not what Ruth is all about, as we'll see. Outside of this book that bears her name, Ruth's name is only mentioned here in Matthew's Gospel. And I think Matthew gives us a big hint of what this book is all about. I want us to today to just kind of think about the whole book. Uh, we're going to just kind of do an overview today. This is usually the way I introduce books when I begin. And I've also mentioned in the past, you will remember, many of you, that when we go through these book studies, I often liken it to a journey. Now, if you're going on a journey, you don't just go get in the car and go, do you? You have to prepare. And so that's what today is. Today is preparation. Uh, Stacy and I just made a long journey that took a lot of preparation. We had to make reservations. We had to pack clothes. We had to look at maps and figure out where we were going and the best routes and so on and so forth. Well, today, I want us to consider... A few things that I think we will need to know to prepare us as we go through this book. It's going to be several weeks and probably several months. Uh, we're going to take our time and work our way through it little by little. And so it'll take us a good bit. It's just four chapters. It's not going to be four sermons or four, four weeks, but it'll take us a little time. There's... One big idea that I really want you to, to grasp as we're going through here, and, and I want you to be mindful that wherever you are in life, whatever you see that's going on, there are things going on that you can't see. And we need to, to remember, and, and I think Ruth highlights this, that God is always working through the through the good, through the bad. He's always working. In the valleys, on the mountains, through the storms. In fact, uh, we trust Him in the storm because we believe that He ordains those storms for our good. Things that we think are just random things. There aren't random things. In God's way, is there? Well, I hope that you see as we go through this book that that is not the case. But God is always at work accomplishing His purposes. So how do we see that in the book of Ruth? Well, today I want to just point out to you four themes. And I'm basically just going to do an overview of each chapter. So we're going to see a theme from each chapter one thing about this book, I think most of you have probably read it uh, or, or know a good bit about it, so I'm not going to be able to, to give you any surprises, right? You know the story. You know what happens, don't you? But I want us to see, as we look at these four main themes, uh, the projection. There is a there's a, a projection, there's a flow that I think is very important. I think this flow takes place in the life of Naomi, 
in the life of Ruth, and I think it probably takes place in your lives as well. I want us to begin with this theme of sin. I know that that's probably everybody's favorite subject uh, in the Bible to talk about, and so uh, you know we're going to probably spend I don't know how many weeks. I'm only kidding. I know this isn't your favorite subject, and I know it's not anything that anybody likes to talk about. But you don't read the Bible very far before you realize that this is a problem, isn't it? It happens in the third chapter of Genesis. And it just continually continues to recur in this Bible that we read, that we study. We're familiar with this story, and so we read early on in the book of Ruth about a, a man and his wife and his sons who are, uh, well, let's just say that they're kind of in a bad way. The, the very first verse of Ruth says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, that's just one verse, but there's a lot of information in that verse. That verse, or at least the first half of that verse, is really what I'm going to focus on here for a few minutes. It tells us that there's two problems as we come into this story. The first is that this story takes place during the time of the Judges. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Judges, you know that there are some great, great stories in that book, right? God raises up great people to, to bring salvation. We, we know about the story of, of Gideon and and the story of Samson and Deborah and the other judges that God raises up to use. But for the most part, the book of Judges is just really a bad period in Israel's history. Why, do, why does God have to keep raising up these, these saviors? People are always in trouble. <laughs> it's almost like a, an opposite to the book of Joshua. What do you have in Joshua? Well, you have... Uh, conquest, right? And victory and victory and victory. And in Judges, well, let me just give you a few select verses from Judges chapter 1. And you just kind of hone in here and see if you can pick up on uh, something that is recurring in the first chapter of Judges. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. A little bit further down in Judges 1, it says this, But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. And then further down, we have this, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bashan and its villages, or Taanach and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages. And then Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gazar. And, and there's a verse following about uh, Zebulun and Asher and Naphtali. You get the picture, don't you? You think back to, to the end of Joshua and what did God say through Joshua? You keep pressing on. You keep driving these people out. This is God's promised land to you and as soon as we come into judges we find this recurring refrain here they did not drive out the people now you say well okay big deal that's not a problem is it it's a huge problem why why is it a problem <laughs> 
It's a problem because it leads to idolatry. Idolatry and unfaithfulness. How, how does that happen? Well, what, what happens if you don't drive out all those people? They're not worshiping the true God. They're worshiping false gods. The Lord's command had been to drive them all out. This was the land that he had promised to Abraham and his descendants. The promised land. And the people had been uh, commanded to drive them out. Because when you drive out these, these foreign nations, you drive out their gods. And so when we get to Judges chapter 2, we have this. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. What? And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. You see why it's a problem? This is what happens when you don't obey the Lord's commands. I would venture to say that the church in America is right here. We have, have not driven out these crazy, unbiblical ideas from our land, and so we have an intermingling of, of Christians with worldly ideas. And you know what it does? It dilutes the truth produces unfaithfulness in God's people. There's not true worship. Idolatry. Which can take many forms. This leads to a second problem mentioned in the first verse of Ruth. And it tells us that there was a famine in the land. A famine. Now why was there a famine? Why does the writer point that out? Why does he want us to recognize that? Well, sin has consequences. And according to Deuteronomy 28, God, if you remember there, uh, before they go into the land, he, he lays out a, a list of, of covenant blessings and cur covenant curses. And says, if you'll be obedient to me, if you'll be faithful to me, I'm going to send rain. Your crops are going to grow. There's going to be bountiful harvest. Your barns will be filled. But if you're not, I'm going to withhold the rain. If you look into other idols and, and chase false gods and are unfaithful to me, there won't be rain. There won't be bountiful harvest. I don't think I've ever been a part of a famine. I don't think you have either. We figured out ways to get water lots of different places nowadays. But in the ancient world, famine was terrifying. No rain meant no food. It meant people were going to go hungry. And in this case, this is a curse from God. And this is what happens when you fall into sin. We become unfaithful. We start to live the way the world lives. I, I know that we're out there in the world. We have to go to work. We have to go to school and so on and so forth. But we're not to be like the world. Our duty as believers is to come here and worship and, and call the world to come and join us. 
We don't go join them in their garbage. And this is what's happened, and as a result, we have famine. Sin has consequences. It always does. Idolatry, famine, and then it gets worse. The, the famine prompts a man named Elimelech to leave. Think about that, folks. This man, or at least his family, maybe a generation before him, has come into the promised land, rescued from Egypt, and then he decides to leave, to go to a foreign land? This is God's promised land. This is where you're supposed to live. Maybe they're hungry. I don't know. But they leave and they go to another country, Moab. We'll talk more about Moab in days ahead. But of all the places to go, well, let me just say this. If you go back and look at the prophecies in Numbers, if you remember Balaam, the story of Balaam, the king of Moab summoned Balaam to come and curse these people. Anyway, to speed the story up, we, we have Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons in Moab. And while there, Elimelech dies. And his two sons die. And this leaves Naomi in a state of bitterness. Bitterness. Uh, this is what can happen when you are disobedient. When you start trying to figure things out on your own, instead of trusting the Lord and trusting His Word, you say, well, I can figure this out. Well, what happened? Well, you start doing things maybe the way the world does. And there are consequences. And the consequences in this case, in Naomi's case, are bitterness. To the extent that when she goes back home, we, we'll find out in the story that she goes back home, but when she goes back home and sees her friends, she changes her name. Naomi means pleasant. She said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, for I am bitter. <laughs> Folks, things are bad when you get to the point where you change your name. Right? Hmm. This is what happens when God's people are unfaithful. Sin is a, a slippery slope. Most of us, when we are dealing with temptation, we don't just dive all in and then, okay, now we're up to our neck. No, it's little by little by little. It's slippery. We might be slipping and not even know it. But we can find ourselves in a bad, bad way when we intermingle with the world, when we act like the world, worship like the world, And our Heavenly Father, listen, He loves us too much to do nothing. Aren't you glad? What kind of father ignores the disobedience of his children? Well, that's what we see in chapter 1, sin and its consequences. And we could just, boom, close it up and say, well, that was really a sad story, but thankfully it doesn't end there, does it? We move on to chapter 2 and we have a, another theme and it is the theme of hope. You would think that considering Naomi's plight and just kind of what we sense from her that these two daughters-in-law would say, well, I'm not going back with her. 
But amazingly, one of them, Ruth, does. Goes back. This is an amazing young lady, we'll find out. And the last sentence in chapter 1 gives us a, a glimpse of hope. It says, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. That's a word of hope, isn't it? We, we begin with famine, and here at the end of chapter 1, now we have harvest. So that's, a, that's kind of a, a key for us. It sets up chapter 2, and what we find out there is that although Naomi, negative Nellie, thinks that everything is lost, well, that's not the case. Uh, when you think all is lost and you become bitter and disappointed and frustrated, and, and uh, what we'll do when we, when we go through this verse by verse is we actually find out that Naomi, she pins this on the Lord. The Lord has brought this bitterness on me. But even in those times, we must remember, as I said at the beginning, that God is at work. You might not see Him at work. All of you have been through hard, hard times. Maybe you're in a hard, hard place today. Let me assure you that if you belong to the Lord, He's at work. And I can tell you, as someone who's been through some hard times, looking back, oh, I see. I see what you were doing. It's never good in the moment, but we can take great confidence that the Lord is always working everything together for our good, as it says in Romans 8.28. Naomi returns physically, but what I want us to recognize here is that this is actually a, a spiritually uh, a spiritual turning point in the story. If we belong to the Lord, He is working, and we can never lose hope because God is never idle. One thing that stands out in the book of Ruth is the doctrine of providence. The doctrine of providence. Now, if you've not familiarized yourself with this doctrine, it's a wonderful doctrine. Augustus Strong, who was a Baptist theologian and pastor a hundred years ago, says that, he defines the, the doctrine of providence this way, that continuous agency of God by which he makes all the events of the physical and moral universe fulfill the original design with which he created it. The continuous agency of God. He says, in other words, God is always acting. God is always at work. He never stops, even in the midst of, of our sin, temptation, suffering, trials, whatever it is that you're going through, God is working. We might think that some of the things that are going on around us uh, are just random things, inconsequential things. But that's never the case. Let me explain according to what we find out here in the book of Ruth, Naomi's dead son just happened to marry probably the kindest young lady in all of Moab. Uh, one of the most industrious, hard-working ladies that he could have possibly found. He found her. Just happened to. 
They go back to Bethlehem. She just happens to go out and, and glean in the fields one day. And gleaning is what uh, the allowance that God made in the law for the poor people. If, if you were hungry, uh, God said, don't reap everything. Leave some along the edges and in the corner for the poor people to come and gather. And so Ruth goes out and does this. She just happens, this young lady Ruth, this widow, this Moabitess, to glean in the field of a relative of Naomi. How about that? Who just happens to be a God-fearing, trustworthy, honorable man who loves the Lord. One of the things that we'll find out about Boaz is that he knows God's law and he keeps it to a T. He just happened to be single. And every indication in the story is that he is looking for and, and hoping for a wife. And guess what? He just happened to take interest in this foreign widow girl. <laughs> That's a lot of happenstance, isn't it? Any of those things... Very similar things happen to me and you every day. And lots of times we don't even know, wow, if God hadn't done that. God's at work. <laughs> that leads me to a, another idea that we see in this book, and it pops up here in the second chapter, and that is the idea of of blessing or blessedness. It's a, actually a key word in this book, and it occurs several times, but not in chapter 1. Chapter 1 is the chapter of, of curse. But in hope, we find blessedness. The tide here begins to turn. And what we see is that there is a reversal that begins to take place. And, and, and so in the first chapter, we have lostness in a foreign land and, and death and desperation and despair. But things begin to change. And we see a time of, of harvest, and, and harvest means blessedness. Now, we have to make a very important distinction here about what we mean by blessedness, because some people, uh, that means, oh, I've got a really nice big house, or a nice new car, or lots of money, or perfect health. Well, that's really not what Scripture means. In every case, is it? It could mean that. But this is what Jesus says in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Has that happened to you? If it has, Jesus says you're blessed. <laughs> or Paul in Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you are in Christ, you lack nothing. You have everything you need. You are blessed. <laughs> the hope that we see in the book of Ruth points to God's providence, His blessing upon us, and then we also see the Lord's kindness. 
kindness. In chapter 2, verse 20, Naomi uh, is speaking of the Lord to Ruth, and she speaks of the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now, the word here for kindness is very important. It's the Hebrew word kesed. Maybe you've heard somebody uh, pronounce that word before. The, the Hebrew word kesed, it's often translated uh, loving kindness or, or steadfast love or mercy. It's a, a word associated with covenant, with relationship, with loyalty. This love is shown because God, first of all, is faithful to himself. He has made a promise. Now, if you remember, you go back to the book of Exodus, and they come out of Egypt, and God makes a covenant there with them in Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Remember? The Ten Commandments. It's the introduction to the book of the covenant. Do the people keep the covenant? Well, we look back to Judges, right? No. They're worshiping idols. <laughs> they abandoned the Lord. Can the Lord break the covenant? He can't. He can't not break it. <laughs> this kind of love here, this, this loving kindness, this steadfast love is simply God being God because He has bound Himself with a covenant oath. And so here we have this word, kesed, loving kindness. Psalm 136, if you don't remember, that psalm has this refrain over and over and over. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love, kesed, endures forever. And on and on it goes. We don't have a Zoom call this afternoon at 2 o'clock. So let me give you a, a homework assignment. If you don't have anything to do this afternoon, go back and read Psalm 136. And you'll see what I'm talking about. But let us think upon the Lord's steadfast love, His mercy and kindness to us today. That gets us to, to the next chapter, chapter 3. And here we see the theme of redemption. You knew that one was coming, didn't you? If you've read this book, if you've done any studies on the book of Ruth, you recognize the importance of redemption. And don't forget, now we're, we're trying to highlight the movement here. Sin and hope and now redemption you see where we're going we know what redemption is don't we redemption carries with it the idea of a price being paid to rescue someone who's in a in a bad situation and at the end of chapter 2 Ruth informs Naomi that she's been working uh, not just in a field, but in the field of a man named Boaz. Now, this is exciting news to Naomi because she, she says there in chapter 2, verse 20, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And then we get into chapter 3 and this idea is fleshed out. So, so what does it mean that Boaz is a redeemer? Well, it doesn't mean anything if Boaz doesn't have any interest in this situation. And so the first thing that we notice is his interest. In chapter 3, verse 2, uh, 
Naomi is speaking and says, Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? Now that verse suggests more than we think because it tells us that Ruth was one of many. There were many young ladies out gleaning in this field and Boaz looks at the foreigner, the widow, uh, when he shows up to the fields and talks to his workers, he, he sees her. Who is that? Oh, well, that's, that's Ruth. She, she came back from Moab with Naomi. Ah, oh, tell, me, tell me more. This man Boaz has an interest in this young lady. His eye has been cast toward her. And he's interested in her. What does it mean that Boaz is a redeemer? Well, second, he's a relative. A kinsman redeemer. He, he's not only interested, but what we see is that he's qualified. He's qualified. Just so happens that he's a relative, right? Isn't that amazing that Ruth just happened to go to, to that field? The field of Boaz. And he is what we call kinfolk. At least what I call kinfolk growing up. That's what we called relatives. And go see some of our kinfolk. And guess what? Boaz is kinfolk. If Boaz is not kinfolk, we don't have a story. But it just so happens that he's interested and he's our relative. He's one of our redeemers. He's qualified. He has met the qualifications. And it's not just that he's interested that he likes Ruth or that Ruth likes him, but according to God's word, in the law there was a stipulation made for a close relative to be able to pay the redemption price. And guess what? Boaz meets those qualifications. But this is not enough, is it? What does it mean for Boaz to be a redeemer. Well, he's interested, he's qualified, but finally I want us to see that he is determined. He is determined once all the facts come out. And Boaz figures out what's going on and Ruth and Naomi figure out what's going on. Well, he sets his mind to do something and he will not be stopped. He will not be stopped. He is determined. And Naomi knows. She knows this man. She knows his character. She tells Ruth in chapter 3, verse 18, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. He's interested. And he's qualified. And he's determined. Nothing will stop him. That brings us to our final theme here in chapter 4 and again notice the movement from sin to hope to redemption and now what do we have in the last chapter we have the theme of joy Boaz makes good on his intention and it involves a lot of details that we're not going to be able to get into today for time's sake but what we must see is that the redemption that Boaz purchases is complete, full redemption. We'll get, get into this more when the time comes. 
But the redemption that is talked about here in the book of Ruth is the redemption of Naomi, this, this bitter mother-in-law. The redemption of this foreign girl, this widow, Ruth. And the redemption of the land and all of Elimelech's property that would have been lost. But Boaz comes to the rescue and redeems it all. And what is the result? Pure and overflowing joy to these ladies, right? Especially Naomi. Naomi's joy is really highlighted here in chapter 4. Imagine her journey. Imagine what her life has been over the last several years. To be so disappointed that they leave their homeland, they leave the promised land, go to a foreign country, try to make it there. How much of that foreign country did, did, did they take in themselves? They take all of the, the customs and everything of the Moabites. We don't really know. But we do know that while there, her husband dies, her sons die. In those days, if you lost the men of your house, you had nothing if you were a woman. You, you were going to be destitute. And this is where she's at. So hopefully we can sympathize to some degree and understand why she comes back and says, Don't call me Naomi. There's nothing pleasant in my life. The Lord has given me bitterness. Think about this journey of where she was then and where she is when she comes to chapter 4. From no hope, no potential, nothing but death and loss, and now the Lord brings hope and redemption and joy. Joy, yes. Where does this joy come from? Well, it comes because essentially what has happened is Naomi has taken the journey from death to life. She's been given new life. When they find out that Ruth is pregnant after her marriage to Boaz, this is what the women say to her, uh, to Naomi in chapter 4, verse 14. Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life. The book of Ruth is about a journey from death to life. It's really about resurrection, isn't it? This kind of joy produces lots of things in the believer. But one thing that I hope that it'll produce in us that we see here in this book is something that I think a lot of people never really uh, took into account. And that's joyful service. Joyful service, where do you get that at? Well, guess what they name the little boy that Ruth and Boaz have? Obed. Now all you guys read ahead and did some deep study for, for today's lesson, didn't you? And you know what Obed means. One who serves. And not only is this Obed's name, one who serves, but this is what Naomi now does. This is the old bitter mother-in-law. But when this baby comes, 
When her life is restored, now she wants to serve. And what does she do? She takes the child. And the scripture tells us that she becomes his nurse. This is the work of servants. She says, oh, no, no, no. Let me take him. I want to take care of this baby. I'll take care of him. <laughs> there's new life. There's, there's joyful service. And one final thought that I want to leave you with as we close this morning is fulfillment. Should give us great cause to rejoice when we see God fulfill His promises and keep His word. As beautiful as the, the book of Ruth is, what a beautiful story it is. My uh, professor in college, who I, I took a class with a professor in college called The Bible is Literature. He was lost. He didn't believe the Bible, but he said, as far as the book of Ruth goes, it's unsurpassed in literary beauty. We can't deny that, can we? But it's really not about Naomi or Ruth or Boaz. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew gets that, doesn't he? When he gives us the genealogy, Ruth ends with a genealogy. Matthew begins with a very similar genealogy. And he spells things out for us. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab uh, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. There's a reason that Matthew gives us this genealogy. And the reason is to show us that the king has come. He's come. Now, it's easy for us to forget that, isn't it? When we look around at what's going on today. We seemingly have a pandemic going on in our country. Whether or not uh, we do, we've been made to, to think that we do. There's something out there, some kind of virus, exactly how serious it is. I think we're still trying to figure it out. But if nothing else, our country has just been shrouded in fear, hasn't, hasn't it? And there's civil and political unrest. Turn on the news now, which is getting harder and harder to do, but all you see is cities burning, looting, fighting. And it would be easy for us to make this conclusion. There is no king. <laughs> But let me reassure you that we have a king. And he's in complete control of everything. He is working everything out for your good. One molecule of COVID-19 virus does not go anywhere without Jesus' permission. No riot starts without Jesus' permission. And guess what? There's coming a day where he is going to squelch every virus, every riot, all of the besetting sins that you and I deal with on a regular basis. It's coming. We know it is because Matthew tells us that Jesus has come. And Ruth tells us that in this journey from, from sin to hope to redemption, it culminates 
with the fullness of joy that you and I have in the presence of Jesus. Do you know him? Is he your king? I hope you do. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word. What a great encouragement it is for us to know that the anointed one has come, our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he rules and reigns, and he's coming again. And when he comes, may he find a pure and spotless bride anticipating his return. Oh Lord, that is my prayer for our church here today. Please strengthen us and encourage us as only you can. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.